The power of one is never as great as the power of 10. Community can mean everything to each of us individually, whether it be at work, home, or in your social life. Community brings us together and always leads to greater success. On today's episode of Higher Learning, we talked to Sam Davidson, the Chief Executive Officer with the Nashville Entrepreneurial Center. Today, our discussion centered around everything from Nashville being one of the most entrepreneurial cities in America, how the deeper you dive into community, the higher you'll rise in your career, and how shared energy fuels the Nashville's EC community. I was so grateful for Sam for joining today, and he's such a polished speaker. I'm so excited for you to hear his insights. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by Sam Davidson, CEO of the Nashville Entrepreneurial Center. Also, my landlord when I visit Nashville. How you doing, Sam? Hey, we're doing great, Oz. Thanks for your rent check. Yeah, you got it. So grateful for you guys. So grateful for all the stuff you're doing out there. I know you only joined the company a few months ago. Really excited to kind of hear your journey, why there. But when you and I first started talking, Sam, you started talking about your love of community and how important community is to you. And that really resonated with me. So I want to start here. Before we get into the EC, before we get into your journey, I want to know what is so important to you about community. And I'm actually interested to know, what's the first community you were in that mattered to you? Yeah, community matters because we as humans, number one, we are just biologically hardwired for it. So we are social animals by nature, our earliest ancestors. That is why they came together uh, was for to form community for a couple of reasons. Number one, just to survive because they realized, hey, I, I can't fight the saber tooth tiger alone. I need your help. So let's get together. So number one, we as humans uh, come together for safety in community, which means if you're trying to grow a community and it's not a safe space for those you're trying to attract, then we got to start there. We as humans, number two, once we feel safe, then we want to grow. We, we learn together. We go to school together. I know math, you know Spanish. Let's teach each other what we know. But number three, what sets us apart, you know, a lot of other species in the animal kingdom band together to survive and to grow. But number three, we find meaning in community. And so we are some of the only, or if not the only species that has to wonder like, what is all this for? And so we come together, religion, philosophy, whatever we want to talk about, wherever it is, we find meaning, we do that together. And I think entrepreneurship and starting a business can be one of those things that takes other people to have success. My earliest community that I think of, of course, it's going to be my home. I get it. Not everybody can find a community in their home. My hope for those folks is they can find a home in their community. So for me, I was very fortunate. I had very loving parents, a great ecosystem at home that still supports me to this day as that family has grown. But I also remember things, a lot of us have this, whether it's early sporting teams, uh, my church youth group growing up was very important, uh, friends at school. So all of those, I always throughout my life, as I look back, I find this thread of community is woven throughout that kind of pieces a lot of things together and has gotten me to where I am today. I love that. That's, that's amazing. I'm reading a book called The Rational Optimist. And, and to your point, it was talking about kind of early man and what really differentiates us from other animals, right? Even animals with complex brains and, and different things like that. And really what they said was, what the, what the author said was that no other being but a human actually barters back and forth in terms of I have fish, you have meat, let's trade. Other species like give things up, right? And and but there there's there's this expected nothing is about barter. And so I think that's really interesting to say that because that as our world becomes more 
globally connected and we come together as a community, our community actually gets much smaller and our ability to expand our community into areas that previously unseen. I just think it's so important that that coming together, it's, it's really baked into who we are, who we were in the earliest of dawn of time. And so I think that's a, a really interesting perspective. Another thing you said that, that really stood out to me was you mentioned that the height of my success equals the depth of my community. That was really profound, but I'd like to get your point of view on that. What did you mean when you said that? Yeah, before I came to the EC, I was an entrepreneur for 17 years, started four different companies, two in the product space, two in the consultancy space. And I was running my most recent company, which was a gift company, up until COVID hit. And when COVID hit, we had a retail store that was doing really well for us, had to close that down, pivot everything to our, our bulk sales and our online sales. And while there was opportunity in that, it wasn't easy. And obviously, COVID upended the world in a way that is really unprecedented in most of our lifetimes. And I was exhausted about a year and a half, 18 months in. And I was exhausted. Yeah, I worked a lot because when you don't have to commute necessarily, or you can work all the time, you tend to work all the time as an entrepreneur. But when I really started diving deeper, I was like, I don't think I'm, I'm tired because I'm working hard. I've always worked hard. I was tired because I didn't have the opportunity to create and go deep in community. And so, yeah, that, that phrase about the end of 2021, about a year and a half into the pandemic hit me. The height of my success is directly related to the depth of my community. And it was the serendipitous community that I was missing, that I thrived on. And so I was drained. It was the friends you might bump into at an airport. It was meeting a new person at a coffee shop. It was getting a mutual connection and saying, yeah, let's do lunch. You just couldn't do that for so long. And I was drained. And so as the world started to sort of emerge from a lot of the lockdowns and restrictions, a lot of that loneliness, I made it my personal mission to say, how can I help people understand the value of community? How can I get more of that into my company? And now how can I bring that to the EC to help especially entrepreneurs realize you're not meant to do this alone. You cannot do this alone. And so if you want to climb higher mountains, you need to first go deeper and assemble those people around you, be it a group of supporters, advisors, mentors, um, people who want to help you get to ever new heights of success. Yeah, I love that. One of the, you know, our company's been around for about 13 years. And one of the kind of the secrets I learned on pretty early is we've had really high engagement and really low attrition throughout the history of the company. And one of the things, I mean, we pay pretty good. Like we give people exciting work. We try to develop people. But really, ultimately, we found one of the greatest kind of correlations between people feeling good about their work was who are the people I work with? Do I feel like I have community with them? Do I feel like they're, we're in it together for a broader and bigger purpose, right? Obviously, there's my hiring manager and my leader, somebody that I look up to. But that creating that community feel within your work is one of the biggest superpowers any entrepreneur or any leader can do. And it's hard. It's, it's not easy because you're looking for diversity of thought. You're looking for diversity of experience. And so you're typically bringing people together from all different types of backgrounds. But that doesn't mean that you can't build a really robust community and shared purpose around hopefully your company's vision, its purpose, and what it's trying to do. So I think that's a, a really special thing that you talked about. And my highest effectiveness and the best I've ever felt about work I'm doing or a sports team I'm on, or even with my family, is when I feel I come home and I'm supported, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm enjoying the people I'm around. And that can't always be the case, but it has to be the case more often than not. And then you're going to have a really awesome and viable community that you want to keep coming back to. Let's talk a little bit about the Entrepreneur Center. What is the vision, for people who don't know, you're in Nashville, in the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. What's the vision of it? What's the purpose of it? What, what are you trying to bring together out of the Entrepreneur Center? 
Yeah, we at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, I'll, I may refer to it as the EC through this conversation, but we exist to make Nashville the best place to start and grow a business by increasing the likelihood of success for entrepreneurs. If you're an entrepreneur out of the gate, you have less than a coin flips chance at success after five years. So over half of all businesses fail within five years. So those are the odds out of the gate. It takes a particular kind of crazy to look those odds in the face and say, okay, I'll sign up for that. That sounds great. I'm probably not going to do this well. And so, but when you're willing to do that, it's not enough just to find people who can beat the odds. We always cheer those people. Look, you overcame a lot. And I love that. That's great. It's awesome success stories. But we've started to ask here, what if the odds weren't stacked against you? What if that deck wasn't stacked against you? What if the odds could actually be in your favor? And so we've said, look, we don't want to just help people beat the odds. We want to actually change the odds themselves. So when we look at successful entrepreneurs, and this is not our own research, but if you look across industry research, talk to a successful entrepreneur, they all say, they say a bunch of stuff happened that, that allowed their success, but they all have at least one thing in common and that's access to a mentor, access to somebody else who had done it before. So number one, we want to make sure we can connect people to the community that they need to succeed. If you look at failure, both empirical research and anecdotes, why did this thing fail? Lots of things, but on every list, lack of the fundamentals. And so those are fundamentals of business in general, fundamentals of your market, your product, who you were trying to reach. So we want to help people understand the fundamentals. So we do that through our accelerator and event programming. So people have access both to community and education, and that should change the odds of success for them. Yeah, I love it. I mean, obviously, I've spent some time there whenever I visit our office in Nashville. The vibe is amazing. It feels like there's a lot of shared energy. There's always great talks going on in, in the conference room. Um, and then you're just bumping into people, whether it be in, in the studio or whether it be by the fridge or the water cooler. Um, there's always just so many interesting people with, with so many interesting stories. So for me, it's fantastic. And I, I can totally co-sign on the fact that it's a great environment that leads to, I think, right, being able to grow your company and be able to come up with more creative ideas and, and meet great people who are trying to do similar things. So I think it's really, really awesome. Is it, you, you spent the majority of your career as an entrepreneur. This is a little bit of a different twist, right? What drew you? Did you want to give back or was this just the right time in your career? What, what kind of led to the moment of you taking the role at the EC a few months back? A little bit of all of that. You're right. I spent almost 20 years as an entrepreneur. So this is the first time in a long time I had walked into a place or something that I didn't create, or I didn't at least have uh, my fingers involved in sort of that that dream or that idea stage. But it's been awesome. Look, I've known about the EC, having been an entrepreneur in Nashville as long as I have. The EC has existed for about 15 years as an idea, 13 officially. We've been in our current home for 10 years. And about 15 years ago, a group of leaders in Nashville looked across the city landscape and they said, all right, we've got resources for small businesses, medium businesses, large businesses. What about new businesses? World-class and growing cities have resources for startups, for entrepreneurs. We don't. Let's start it. So the EC was born. Um, and we've grown since then by not being anymore the only resource for entrepreneurs. There's about 70 organizations now in Nashville serving entrepreneurs. So I wanted to come be a part of that ecosystem of that energy. I had by default across my entrepreneurial career ended up in conversation. I wouldn't call it a mentorship, but maybe offering advice to some entrepreneurs as they were trying to figure out their business, et cetera. So I'd been in that place of helping people sort of one-on-one -on -one or tell my story. And so when this opportunity arose earlier this year and I had the chance to engage with the hiring committee. Each time it was like, yeah, this this could be a great next chapter and opportunity as our city is changing so much, as entrepreneurship, as an opportunity, as a discipline is changing so much. I think that this is the spot to really create a lot of change and help create a lot of companies knowing that 
we might have some unicorns come out of here, companies that have billions plus dollar valuation, but that's rare in and of itself. But what if we could help, maybe not a billion, but what if we could help so many people be smarter about their business, be more fulfilled in their business and create success? I talk about, we want to increase the likelihood or change the odds of success. Success is a word that we're going to be exploring a lot coming up. Because yes, it's financial success. Obviously, if you're not successful financially, you won't get a chance to be successful anywhere else. But we're starting the conversation about mental health and entrepreneurship. We're starting the conversation about social impact and entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship changes lives. And it's those changed lives that change cities, that change communities. I love that. So now I'm going to sound like I'm part of the Nashville Chamber of Commerce. I promise I'm not an employee there. I had not been to Nashville before about three years ago. And I think I've been probably 15 plus times since. Um, from the relationships that we've built in the academic uh, institutions there with Belmont and Vanderbilt to the people that we've met on in the business side uh, and the public sector, uh, sector um, from banking to sports, everybody I've met is so amazing. It's such an incredible city. It's so vibrant. It's 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 kind of already there, but also on the way up and ascending in a way that I don't see out of a lot of cities. Obviously, the food and drinks and the music situation is, is very, very special. Um, I'm a big fan of the city, and I've come to see that a big part of it is that Nashville takes care of Nashville. And what I find to be really interesting is that I have a couple of friends who are entrepreneurs um, out there. One of them owns a software company. She only takes in investment from Nashville-based investors. Numerous people I know from our customers and different corporate organizations I work with are investors who invest back into the community out there. And so I think that's such a special part about what makes Nashville so special. Here's what I would ask you. What does growing an effective entrepreneurial ecosystem in a city like Nashville mean to the city? From an economy perspective, from its residence perspective, how does what you're building and doing, how does that pay back to the average person who lives you know, in a suburb of Nashville who's lived there their whole life? So I would answer it a couple of ways. One, I think what we're trying to do is help entrepreneurs go farther, faster. And so a lot of companies that dot our skyline here, those are companies that started here. Some started in other places, but they want to be in Nashville. And those are companies that have gone far, some of them slowly, totally fine. They're mega million, billion dollar companies. That's awesome. But when we can help more entrepreneurs go farther, faster, that creates people who want to stay here. So all the stuff you mentioned about, you love it when you visit here, those are all created by entrepreneurs. And so some may be franchises, but places to eat, places to shop, places to sleep, those are all entrepreneurs. And so the more we have of those, then the more the city becomes vibrant. We're art entrepreneurs, entertainment entrepreneurs. Then you want to come here 15 times in three years, which we appreciate your tax dollars, that funds our teachers, that funds our police. I sound like the mayor now. Uh, but those are all <laughs> parts of this ecosystem. I mean, show me a city that's growing and I will show you a solid base of entrepreneurship. Show me a city that's shrinking and I'll show you a, a lack of entrepreneurship. And what's going to revive it when you've seen some other cities that have truly turned around? It's because entrepreneurs flooded that space and they were committed. They were given the freedom, the resources to really grow it. Nashville has never abandoned its entrepreneurs. And I think it's going to continue to invest in them through places like the EC, through other ecosystem partners, through our educational institutions at every level to say, this is going to be a great place to start and grow. Both of those matter a business. And so that's the role that we want to play in this for every citizen. If you're not going to be an entrepreneur, I bet you know one, you just mentioned a couple that were friends of yours. So even if you are, um, populating one of these companies that was started by an entrepreneur as a VP of sales, as head of HR, as a social media manager. Entrepreneurs need all of those people. So entrepreneurs are those who lead in creating jobs and therefore creating wealth and creating change in their communities. 
I love what you said that and you kind of reframe my mind a little bit. Maybe there's more entrepreneurs per capita in Nashville than anywhere else. Cause you're right. There's so many musicians, right. Which are at the end of the day, entrepreneurs, right. Then I, there, there's tons of big chain restaurants, but actually in Nashville, I find that there's a lot more one-off bistro type specialty restaurants that you won't find anywhere else. Obviously the craft cocktail scene, there's a tons of those. Um, there's different retail places. Like you're right there. It is a very entrepreneurial spirit out there. And I didn't really know that I looked at it that way until you just said it that way. Because a lot of the people I bump into the EC are doing more traditional forms of it, right? whether it be software or something along those lines. But you're right. Every single person that's out there on Broadway or out there with their own restaurant is an entrepreneur in one way or another. That makes total sense. You said you talk to founders every day, which obviously in your role is, 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 is not that tough. But I'm interested to know if there's any great stories you have about how the EC has maybe positively impacted a founder and a company in a way that has allowed their trajectory to be different than it might not have been otherwise. Yeah. And, and one whose story we tell a lot, I don't know if, I hope she's not tired of us telling it, but um, you know, I think about a woman named Shawnee Dowell. And so she started an app called Possup, which is a mashup of the words positive and gossip. African-American woman, she came through our, what is our pre-flight program. So that's from idea stage to business plan. Then she went through our in-flight program, which is really helped set to help founders scale, ended up raising money as part of that or right after that. And was the first African-American woman in the state of Tennessee to raise over a million bucks in venture funding. And her company continues to grow. She continues to be uh, nominated for different awards and accolades and is really raising the bar for what it means to be a tech company, especially a woman-founded tech company, a black woman-founded tech company uh, here. And we're just, we're so lucky she is a board member as well. So we claim her in that way, but we're so lucky and fortunate and excited that she's come through some of our programs there. So I think there's examples like that, that a direct relationship to programming. Um, there's even examples. I mean, we just added a new position here for the first time called Capital Connector. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they raise their hand, hey, I, I, want, I want to raise money. I need to raise money. And so we realized that no one out of all these ecosystem partners is really mapping capital, investment capital, both uh, in all forms, equity, debt, and, and grant. And then no one is really coaching an entrepreneur through that because raising money gets headlines. It's sexy. It's fun. Hey, I'm a, I'm a funded founder. Look at me. But a lot of entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know. And based on your background, your idea, et cetera, it's really hard to find the right money. So we've said, we're gonna invest in that. And so we've got a position, her job is to meet with founders to say, all right, let me do an intake. Let's assess where you are. Are you ready? If not, let's get you ready. She meets with funders. Hey, what are you investing in? What are you looking for? Tell me about your check size, your industry, your stage. And then when it's right, she wants to connect the two. First 30 days, she helped two companies raise a collective $150,000 through those connections. And that's something that we wanna scale. Because as an entrepreneur, you start knocking on doors, you got to knock on 100 before you finally figure it out. You might die on the vine, run out of money while you're doing it. It would have been a lot easier if I could have told you, don't knock on those 99. Here's the one to knock on so you can get farther faster. I love it. You're like It's not just like a, a location, like a WeWork you're providing. You're actually providing services for where different phases of companies are. You're doing specialist groups. And you're also now connecting people to capital in a way that is just transformative for their organization. So you are doing incredible work, you and the team over there. I love, love, love everything you're doing. I want to get a little bit into hiring because I know you've done a lot of that throughout your career. I'm even interested in kind of your take on as you're assessing founders, what you're looking for too. So feel free to kind of look at it through either lens. I want to start here. Hiring philosophy, maybe kind of an overarching, this is my belief about hiring. This is one of my core principles about hiring. When I ask you that, what comes to mind? So I think number one, you want to hire for passion and train for talent based on the role. So some roles you that, that you're listing, 
a certain level or higher, they got to have a basic level of talent. But throughout my career, when I've ended up with an A player, it's because it was somebody who was really bought in. I use the word passion, which I think is overused, but it was someone who brought a lot of passion to the table. I always said that my personality and energy, I can always kind of help people tamp down or, or sort of um, uh, abate the passion when it's too much. But man, to try to draw it out of somebody who just doesn't have it, that's exhausting for even for me. So I've always wanted someone to come with a lot and I can help shape that a little bit. Uh, and then I can train you for talent. So whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, whether it's one of those skill-based positions, let's coach somebody up if we need to in, in a certain role. Now, if they've got to hit the ground running, obviously we want that talent there too. And so we can kind of find out where we're going there. Um, man, I love what you said earlier about how community relates to the workplace and I'm a big believer that people don't leave bad jobs. They leave lonely jobs. Not that your your workplace should take the space, the place of your family. I don't use words uh, like, hey, we're a family here, because I do think there needs to be a, a good separation for a lot of reasons. But I do hope that people can find a common purpose, uh, again, community, common unity in their work, that we're coming together for this cause. So Absolutely, especially a place at the EC, like the EC, you got to find somebody who is going to be bought in and can prove that through an interview process that they are bought into the mission to the the work that we're doing here. We just completed a, a hiring of a key position, and we judged for that. We looked at resumes, we read cover letters, but as we went to a questionnaire round, a video round, an in-person round, it was always making sure that they have a passion for helping and or creating entrepreneurs because I can't teach you that. I love that. And I'll just say a couple of points from what you said. One, uh, the way I frame kind of that passion component is I'd rather have to say hold up than sick them. You got to tell somebody to go sick them, then you're probably gonna have to be doing that throughout their career. I'd rather have to rein it in a little bit with somebody and say, hey, maybe you're a little bit too assertive or a little bit too excited. Um, but you can channel that. I find that to be a lot easier. The other thing is you brought up the point about family, and that's something that I stopped doing a long time ago. And I've actually had many employees say it feels like a family here and it brings that vibe. And I don't correct them on it. But when I'm outwardly talking, I talk about a high-performing team, right? Because at the end of the day, a high-performing team is you got to fight for your spot. you got to be contributing to the bigger purpose and the bigger mission. And that's part of it where you're getting a lot of unconditional love, I would hope, in, in a family setting, right? Um, but for us... It's that bigger purpose to achieve, you know, a financial goal as a company or an objective as a company, which also, by the way, goes hand in hand with your own individual goals of what you want professionally to develop and what you want to do financially so you can take care of yourself and your family uh, in a way. So I think that there's just such an alignment between employer and employee and what's happened over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years is that that's gotten fractured a little bit and there's a little bit more lack of trust where the employee is looking out for themselves because they feel like the employer is looking out for themselves. And so I agree with you. I don't like that term family, but I do think that there's a reciprocity and outcomes that are mutually beneficial on both sides that sometimes we lose sight of, right? It's not every person working for the man or it's not treating people like numbers and, 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 and being kind of... Uh, you know, uh, heartless when it comes to these being real people and hiring the whole person. But you can combine both of those things and work together and work for each other. That can be a really beautiful and powerful thing. So I think that goes back to the community we were talking about a little bit earlier. Let's talk about memorable interviews. It can be an interview maybe that you had or maybe somebody you were interviewing. Good, bad. We don't have to name names. Up to you, Sam. What's an interview that comes to mind when I bring that up to you? I always tell the story when I sort of give uh, have more time and I give a longer trajectory of my career. My first job out of college, I had one skill that I learned in college. I was a history major, so I had a lot of ideas. But in terms of skills, I set up audiovisual equipment for events at my college. And so needed a job out of college, had to pay rent, ended up 
applying for a job at a hotel. Hotels do business conferences. They got to set up projectors and microphones, et cetera. So I had the skill. I didn't want to work in a hotel. The I had to be on property. The call time every morning was 5 a.m. to start setting up for these meetings. But God, I needed a job so bad. So across the, the table, the director of ops, my future boss was like, look, we don't do contracts, but I don't want to have to replace this position constantly. We're doing this again after six months. The guy left. Can you be here at least two, maybe three years. And in my head, I'm like, God, I hope not. I don't want to wake up that early. I'm going to go find something else as soon as I can. But I, I didn't say that. I was like, yeah, I love it, man. Let's set up some microphones at 5 a.m. Sounds awesome. <laughs> Turns out I ended up being there two to three years uh, anyway, because I couldn't find anything else. But in the process, large hotel company kind of got a crash course, a mini MBA, if you will, because I didn't study business. Uh, in college. And so it ended up setting the the stage for my future success. When I went in to quit that job, uh, he told me I was crazy. He was like, man, you started this, you already been promoted to manager. He himself um, had climbed the ranks and was excited about where he was. And he was like, I can't believe you're leaving. You could make a crap ton of money. That wasn't what he said. Uh, why are you leaving? I can't believe you're doing this. And he goes, you know, I, I want to keep doing this. And he had, a, he had a clear plan. And he was like, why are you leaving? And I was like, because uh, I'm ready to go and try something new. And then that was what started the entrepreneurial journey. And he was like, I just got to do this for six more years and then I'm set. And I was, I remember thinking, I was like, uh, unless a bus, it's always the proverbial, what if a bus hits you? Which again, I know that happens not to make light of it. But, um, and to me, I just remember that, that um, conversation because the first end, it was a question of money versus opportunity. And I chose money. So I had the opportunity uh, was to get this job, even though it wasn't what I wanted to do waking up at 5 a.m. And when I left, it was money versus opportunity. Yes, I had a trajectory. I could have ended up running one or multiple hotels. I have no doubt, but the opportunity was there to go do my own thing. And so as I think about anytime I make an offer or I'm doing a hire or even interviews like this, I'm like, it's money versus opportunity. And I think a lot of us are trying to answer that question or even ask it of ourselves. And to me, entrepreneurship is a great way to navigate it for a lot of people. I love that. I, I, I'll tell you, and we were talking about this this morning, and I read this, so it's not an original thought, but you know what I would advise any early in career talent is say yes to everything in your 20s, right? And then as you get to your 30s and you start to have some success, you start saying no and, and start limiting your time and focusing. But just being open to opportunities, open to learning, getting that crash course, getting the MBA, that set the target for what you ended up doing over the course of your career, and you never would have known that. Although, I got to go back real quick. History major, you said. God, I, so like, do you have a favorite like war or favorite time in history that you love to study? So everybody asked me that in college, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so I tried to forever not to pick a major. I just enjoyed different classes, philosophy, religion, uh, PE. I took, I think, more PE classes than anybody because it was fun. It was interesting. I mean, they were they were kind of easy. They pad the GPA a little bit. Um, but it was finally into my sophomore year. you got to pick a major. And so I looked in the course catalog is when they printed them. And I was like, what has the fewest number of required classes? And it was history. And I was like, hey, I could do this. This is easy. I'm already like halfway done. So I'll still have as much time to take the electives that I really want to, that I enjoy, but I don't necessarily want to pursue or just can be interesting. So I did history. No, it was a very general history degree. My senior thesis was on the Savannah, Georgia-based anti-dueling association well before Hamilton made dueling popular. But these guys were nonviolent protests trying to get people to end dueling um, back in that day. And again, in retrospect, what did I learn in that history major? A bunch of history and facts? No, not really. I learned analytical thinking, how to evaluate uh, a bunch of material, reading, writing, communication skills that still served me well. And that's always the interesting piece for me. Everybody thinks like, oh man, tell me about your career. How did you get there? I'm like, kind of just stumbled forward in most of it. I mean, everybody's this got... opportunity. This, right. And in retrospect, it looks like a perfect line, 
But it, you talk to most people, and they're like, oh, no, dude, I had no idea. No. I mean, I think one of the greatest disservices we do to our youth is, like, when you turn 18 and you got to pick a major, and then, like, a lot of people just get into that funnel, and then that's where they go. And then they find out 10 years later, this is not what I want or what I want to do. I, not by not by design, but I had, like, three or four majors as I went through, and I was like you. I wanted to learn. Like, I wanted, like, I, I, st I took a lot of religion classes. I took a lot of philosophy classes. I took a lot of political science classes because there was things that I wanted to learn that I didn't necessarily know were going to apply to my my career one day, although I didn't know what the heck that was at the time either. But I wanted to be able to have educated conversation around things as important as politics and religion and philosophy and kind of understand myself and what made me me. And so I went into college as much about kind of chasing like the spirituals, maybe too strong of a word, but getting to know myself and what I'm about as much as I wanted to the academia. And so I ended up graduating with business and communications, but it was all the classes I took in between my first and fifth year that, and when, before I graduated, that really, I think, in a lot of ways, shaped who I am and changed the, my mindset and, and made me more analytical. So I'm sorry, a little bit of a pause there. I just had to jump into that's amazing. I really like that. Next time we're together, I want a little bit more about Georgia and the Anti-Dueling Act uh, pre- uh, Aaron Burr. So let's go here. Favorite question. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask? Maybe it's of founders. Maybe it's of people that you're hiring into the EC. To me, it's where do you find your deepest community? And so that can be a people. It can be a place. It can be an identity. And based on who you're asking when and where, it can change. But for folks to first, it forces them to think about community in terms of depth, not just breadth. I think especially a lot of young people are like, how many sports can I play? How many extracurriculars can I get? How many things can I join? Whereas really for a lot of us, community comes through depth. And so some of that can be seasonal. Again, I'm very fortunate that the home now with my wife and kids, I mean, that's a very deep and rich community, of course. I'm growing one here. And I already say I'm growing it because I'm the, the newest guy in here at the EC. This team has is and has a growing and deep community that I love to see. So to me, that's one of the favorite questions I like to ask folks because then it goes off in seven or eight different directions that can be really rich. So yeah, where do you find your deepest community these days? Yeah, I got to be honest. I like to answer the questions that my my uh, guests come up with. So I'm going to try and do that. It's work. Like my work is my deep community, but that extends out to our customers and talking about what their challenges they're going through. And I look at that as my community. And then of course I got a community at home. I have my, my three daughters and my son and my wife and We've built something very special there too. So yeah, to your point, like the more great communities you have and the better you're feeling about any of them at any given time gives back to all the other communities you're in and it just kind of enhances life. It feels like it's tough to have a great work life if you don't feel good about your home life. And then listen, everybody goes through ups and downs in all situations. So it's not something that's always going to be perfect all the time and then vice versa, right? If you're having a tough work situation, that definitely impacts your home life too. So finding that balance, right? So both are sustainable and long-term and giving to both of those and being intentional about the energy that you give to both because you're only going to get out of community what you put in. I know you know that, right? So that's where, that's where I think it's really important where people have to not get too burnt out on their work, but also like, as much as I love being with my family and stuff like that, I also have to make sure that I do what I got to do from a work perspective so that I can continue to challenge myself, grow our organization, and be able to do the things I want to do for my wife and kids as well. So I think it's a really good point you make. When you miss on somebody, is there a theme that you go back to or is there something where you kick yourself and you're like, darn it, I wish I would have done X when you make a hire that doesn't end up working out? Yeah, I think it is um, trying to get a sense of overcoming hardship, grit, we might call it. Um, I think, and again, I'm lucky enough where I haven't missed too many times, but uh, when I have, because um, it's usually because they um, don't work out because they don't perform. 
So whether it was sales or whatever their role was, and the question is, all right, why didn't they perform? Okay, tough market. Okay, well, this other salesperson's having success. It's the same market. So what is it? It was the other person realized, hey, I'm going to have to work harder. You're right. The macroeconomic environment or the, or the customer trying to sell into, man, that that funnel just closed up or just shrank unexpectedly. Okay, so so now what? And then it's the person who says, man, maybe if we pivot and sell to this tangent uh, industry or something like that. And so it's the person that um, has less grit. And I used to use the word hustle a lot. And again, that can sometimes equate on the negative side with overwork or work addiction, let's say. Um, and so I think grit is the thing that wants you to work maybe longer, but definitely work harder or in a more focused way or in a, a bigger, more imaginative way, but can stretch yourself to do that. So it's when I haven't been able to accurately assess for grit and I've just looked at a resume or performance. I'm like, oh, they seem great. looks like they can do it. Is trying to figure out that character piece, but leading it again, I'll just say the word again, it's grit. I love that. Great book by Angela Duckworth, grit. I would highly recommend it for anybody who hasn't read it. I, it's funny you say that. I had an interview today with somebody and it's very rare that I'm getting knocked back by answers that I'm like, wow, that's a really good answer. I really enjoy that because I've, I've been in a lot of interviews in my life, um, both me, me interviewing and obviously interviewing other people or coaching people on interviews. And she said to me, I hate to lose more than I like to win. And I'm like, okay, I've heard that before. Like, that's that. I feel that way. I'm I'm similar. She goes, but I think it's a big difference on how you extricate people who are hate to lose more than they love to win. Because when you love to win, yeah, we all love to win, by the way, right? But when you get punched in the mouth or when you get hit with adversity, those people are not always willing to get back up off the floor and fight through to get back to that winning feeling. Whereas when you hate to lose, you're way more proactive around making sure that you do everything in your power to knock down the downsides and doing everything in your power to build up so that you can consistently win. And so I, when she said that, I was like, yeah, that's really interesting. And it's a really good way to kind of frame it because I'm the same way. Like I, I don't, I don't, I, I love sports, but I never gamble. And people ask me why I'm like, cause I hate losing money. I can't stand losing money more than I like winning by far. And that's kind of what I've done in most of my life. And I gotta be honest, part of that feels like a lot of the success I've had professionally is because I hate to lose way more than I like to win. And you hear a lot about that with football coaches too. They don't celebrate the wins, but they're just in misery when they lose. And I don't know if that's a healthy thing mental health wise. I know you brought that up earlier, but that's been my mentality, and I, I see how that's discerning and different from just somebody who loves to win. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, I, I mean, God forbid you find the interviews like, man, I love to lose. Uh, <laughs> and, and to me, the, the thing I would say is like, uh, okay, so when you lose, right, there's the knockdown, let's keep it going. But it's also, and then what did you learn? And I think that translates, you know, sports is easy to do that. Okay, I, learned, uh, I need to learn how to hit a curveball, or I learned I'm not good under pressure, or whatever. And so I think it's the same in any of our organizations, any of our disciplines, is the people who are learning through losing or while losing, while missing your quarterly number, what what you need to learn. Some of it's about yourself, about your team, about your product, about your industry. So there's a lot that can be learned. So in addition to grit, I would say I also look for folks who um, know they um, can tell me how they learn and how they like to learn and a passion for learning about whatever it is. Um, the best salespeople are kind of product agnostic, for example. The best HR people are kind of industry agnostic where they just love figuring it out and then applying this discipline to that industry, to that product, whatever it may be. But that only happens if you really love to learn. I love that. I feel like to work at the EC, you have to be a little more mission-driven. You have to be a little more purpose-driven. So what do you do in the interview process in terms of creating an experience for candidates where they get a feel for what it's like to work at the EC and why that might be something that's worth pursuing for them? Do you do anything kind of special to kind of say, this is what we're about, this is who we are, is this for you? 
we've done a couple of things. One, and I've done this throughout my career where we, you get, you know, at the, at the posting stage, whatever, you know, software you're putting it on, whatever job board you're putting it on, you get hundreds of applications. And so I like to say, like, yeah, our last position, we got 200 applicants, people like 200. I'm like, look, half of those people just click the button. They're not really thinking about it. Uh, they saw a title and maybe a salary range and they hit click. So it's our job then to go through that because we'll see what we find. Um, our latest round, I always do then after that, I look at those, read the resumes, but then I do a questionnaire round because the person who's willing then to thoughtfully sit and write questions is the person who's going to be bought in to what it is we're doing. And so one of those questions this time was tell us about a time you started something and what you learned. And so even if it wasn't an official business, people started a recycling club in their neighborhood. People started a support group for grieving moms. People started, and just they learn in that process because that process is still entrepreneurial, even if you didn't go file a LLC paperwork. And so that was something that let us under, know these people can get in the entrepreneurial mindset, even if they haven't started an actual business on paper. And the last piece I'll say is I always, I never do these hirings or these vettings alone. So I, I, in this last hiring process, had a great thought partner, a VP of operations who um, she was very thorough throughout, made sure the process was absolutely equitable and fair, um, and then thought out the step-by-step -step of the in-person piece. And so we got other team members involved. And at that point, we knew it wasn't a skill fit. The, the That point, I sort of say culture fit, but just sort of a, a mission fit, an organizational fit at that point. Um, that we were looking for because our candidates at that point had gone through so many skill assessments, which was great. And no lie, again, I'll shout out to our VP of Ops, Mira, because um, the hire we ended up going with, he was on my no pile. And I'll tell him this on his first day. And then she was like, I don't know, I see something here that might be worth really bringing to the next round. And, and sure enough, he ended up being our candidate in our selection. I love that. That's, that's especially resonant with me because when you build a good trusted relationship with your customers and you truly know them inside out, a lot of times you're asking them to take that leap of faith or, hey, we understand what you're looking for and we believe even though the resume says X, this, this is why this person's a fit. And some of the best hires that our customers have made or we've made are when you ignore what the standards would say. The resume, as we like to say, 10% of the story. The job description, 10% of the story. The other 90% where you find those fits is how you articulate either your value within that as a person, an individual, or how you articulate the value of the role and the company to the person who's considering it. And so I think that's really, really important. And again, some of the best hires have been the ones that didn't make sense on paper. Totally agree. Let me ask you something from a your hiring experience perspective. Either when you're on video or phone or on, in person, it doesn't matter. Are you leveraging any type of technology to take notes? Are you handwriting notes? Are you using an ATS? Like, what, What's kind of the technology you use as you interview to kind of keep track of things or kind of write down answers? Yeah, we're still small enough where the positions that I think we'll list coming up, and we'll have one, maybe two more key hires in the next little bit, um, is pretty automated. I mean, we list them, like I said, on some of the most popular job sites uh, to get those, collect those. But right now, you know, we have a process where we still look at all those. So the folks who are generous enough to um, now we we do instead of just like the some of the sites where you just apply, 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 we do ask for a cover letter, which again could be stock, but that's sort of, hey, did they put forth effort? Um, and then we go through those. The questionnaires are a simple kind of uh, open source sort of a job form, form fill type um, technology we're using there. But again, we we don't run those through AI or anything. It, it's interesting, this last scenario, uh, because this role we just hired is going to manage people. So we gave them a scenario to type through. Employee A, employee B disagree on something, not a huge fight, but they just have a different viewpoint. How do you handle it? And as I was reading these like 80 or so answers, it's like, man, this opening paragraph is sounding very familiar. 
And it's because I think the candidates were feeding that through chat GPT or something. Oh my gosh. And so the question we had to answer is like, do we hate that? Because again, learn how to learn. Like, sure, this is a tool. AI is here. How do you leverage it again in a smart way? I've yeah. used it to kickstart some answers or some press releases or different content, but I never pass it off as is. We had a couple of people who did. And so it was one of those, right, I'm not going to disqualify them because then it really was. I and mean, that was just the opening paragraph of there are many things to consider when one is managing, you know, yada, yada. And then so <laughs> then they went through the actual answer, which is what mattered. Um, and then we, again, um, so that, that was interesting to think through. If we get to the spot where, gosh, we've got a thousand applicants for a job. I mean, good on us that we've got the kind of culture in place that, that creates that kind of demand uh, to really go through those. We, um, you know, do have sometimes a disqualifying question or, or a, a question that we ask that we know if the answer is this, then it might disqualify. Um, at my previous companies, it was a software question. So, you know, people say I'm proficient in yada, yada. So I would list about uh, six different softwares that our company used regularly in this role. And then I would make up a software name. And if somebody said that they knew that software really well, um, I disqualified them because it was an absolute lie. And so that can be disingenuous. I don't know what the policies are on that, but it was something that I was like, again, I know you want this thing, man, but come if you don't know it just say you don't know it i mean i yeah, do want that level not being self-aware that's right. amazing when, when it comes to like the candidate tracking stuff you just use excel or do you just sticky notes or what do you do we did so yeah our vp of ops she she built an excel file that we had a ranking system on her end and then on my end and we could kind of see kind of try to numerically of you know yes no maybe and see where they were at at the end of that because we were trying to get from 200 we didn't want to pass more than 100 to the questionnaire round knowing sure. that only maybe 50 60 percent would actually do the questions so we were trying to kind of hit a number there um on that piece so she yeah, she built an excel model that we'll use for future hires i love it Hey, for those of you applying to the EC, Sam knows that you're using ChatGPT. So just cut it out. You just got to come up <laughs> with the original right. just content. Just come on. Guys. Just come on. Yeah, it's a fair. It's not too long. Come on. It's fair. Come on. Um, all right. Let's move on. I want to I want to talk about a couple of other things. Is there anything you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? I'm going to say it's community. I mean, um, when I got here to the EC, there were a couple of positions vacant intentionally that were vacant prior to my predecessor leaving. And so the decision was made of, all right, when we hire the new CEO, let them fill these seats. So the first was with our programs, our accelerators. That's the hire we've just made. Um, so next, I'm turning my sights on community because we've got several community here, uh, which you've talked about. One is the co-working community, folks who show up every day. And I like what you said about a shared energy. Because a lot of times in co-working spaces, we talk about shared services. Oh, we got coffee. We got a, a printer. We got a fax machine, if anybody even uses one of those anymore. Um, but to me, I think you come to the EC, I am going to steal this, a shared energy. And so you want to be here with another entrepreneur, even if it's different industry, different stage, different age, all that stuff. Um, but I don't think we're yet really building a community or initiating that community because as an entrepreneur, you can come here, you can put your headphones on and you can just start working all day and never really meaningfully connect. So I want to build that up and think through that. We have a community that's virtual. So we have a membership option that you get access to a Slack channel, some other resources and benefits. I want to grow that because that is how people create community nowadays post-COVID is through a digital place and space. Sometimes it manifests itself in person, but that's still people can find meaningful community there. So we want to be meaningful there too. So I'm excited to do that and see how we can provide more services and more connection because that's what's going to help people go farther faster as entrepreneurs. So that's where my sites are set next. I'm excited to bring some of what I've been thinking, what I've been trying, what I've been talking about, what I've been learning in the community space prior to coming to the EC to bring to bear for us here to see what um, we can create and what that can look like for us. 
Yeah, I know often I'm one of your virtual uh, members, but when I'm there, anything I can do to help with that, I'm happy to do. I, I get so much out of being there, and I've learned a lot just meeting some of the great founders and sitting in on some of those talks. And even I think I was hosting one of those, and we've sponsored a couple of them. So I really enjoy that, and it's a great opportunity to meet the community. I'm very grateful that you do that. Let me ask you a question. I ask a lot of people about the day in the life, but a lot of times they talk about all the meetings they have. So I want to ask this a little bit differently. Um, when you go home at night and you've had a very productive day at work, what typically happened that day? Um, it would have ha it would have been where I answered some questions or decided my next steps on a couple of things. So yeah, I I can have a lot of meetings for sure, but um, right now we're about to hit. We have a fiscal year that matches the calendar year, so most of the first the first half of October for me is going to be budgetary. So not exciting. Me looking at some spreadsheet, asking some team team members questions. It's the first one I've done here. Uh, obviously, Ooh, got tell me more. To, <laughs> to build on. Um, so it's not like great. I got it done, but it's like I got the next thing done and something like that. That you just you got to do. Um, yeah. Grind your way through it. So it's usually that. Sometimes it can be, hey, this is a really great meeting. But to me, meetings are fun. You can learn about people. Uh, but then what, what is the, even the next step? So in a meeting, yeah. even if it's the first time I'm meeting somebody, what's the next thing we're going to do together? And if it's just a meet and greet, good, you run this organization, I run this one, that's cool. But let's go ahead and at least talk about the next time we're going to talk so we know what it is we want to go do do homework uh, and bring it back. My one-on-ones for the folks I manage directly, they all ended with a homework assignment. Nobody wants to call it that, I get it. But today I had that with the marketing team. I said, all right, here's my homework, here's your homework. We're coming back in one week. And I'm excited to share that with each other. So to me, that's a productive day, even though I got a lot of homework to do. Uh, it was, and no, I won't literally do that tonight at home, but just things to do over the next seven days until we meet again. So I like to be able to, hey, this was a great day because I decided what it is I need to do next, AKA work on tomorrow or the next day. Yeah, it's very actionable and you, you have a very intentional mentality about you, right? And, and I think that really pays off in terms of getting things done and moving things forward and advancing the ball, all those different cliches. So I think that's a, a wonderful approach. I want to ask you, and it's okay if you don't, but we have a lot of book readers here on, on, on the old Higher Learning Podcast. Do you have any good book recommendations or anything you just recently read that you might want to shout out for our listeners? Yeah, I'll give you some of both. So I'm a big reader. try to read uh, avidly as I can, again, with young kids and a busy job right now. You stick it in when you can. But uh, every January, I read Atomic Habits by James Clear. So done that four times. No, uh, I have that one at home. It's close to the bed. Yeah, I read so, it. It's one of the books that everybody reads multiple times. It's a great right. reminder. So for me, it's I uh, crack it open January 1, try to finish it within about a week or so since I've reread it so many times now, but it's always a good refresher um, to do that. Right now I'm reading again, um, uh, GTD, Getting Things Done by um, Alan, David Allen, I think, um, just because I read it years ago, but coming into this job, man, there's a lot that lands on my desk. So I'm trying to sort of reintroduce uh, that to, um, you know, that idea to me. Two, two great ones that I read this year that are relevant to what we're talking about. Number one, the book called Who?, and so it's all about talent, finding talent. Hiring methodology. Yep, yep. Great book. Love it. And I referenced it as we were making this last hire. And then one is called uh, Connectable, which is about community, but it's talking about um, how today we are connected, but can you be, can you as a human be connectable? We're connected because we can look at a device and we're connected to every device and software and do we want, but we as humans are connecting with one another less. So research back former uh, consultants, I can't remember the organization, but went and wrote this, are now leading workshops and giving talks all over. Got to see um, one of the authors, of course, their names are escaping me now, is co-written. Got to see one of them present this live back in February, was immediately hooked, bought the book, dove all in, contacted him. So it's a lot of really practical advice about how managers can become connectable to the teams they're leading. So I recommend both those. 
Love that. Great recommendations. I only got one request. Okay, I know you were naming the title of a book, GSD, but when you refer to that in the future, I'd ask that you say you're MSHing, you're making shit happen. Okay, you got you got to do that for me, Sam. All right, perfect. Last question: If you were able to give yourself advice at 20 years old that you have now that you didn't know then, or maybe for any of our early in career talent listening, advice for them as they get kicked off in their career, what would it be? Uh, be patient. And I know that's not something I tell my four-year-old, but it's something I think is is one of my superpowers now. We can talk about community, but um, I can outweigh you. I can be more patient than you. Not because I don't want to act, but because I can wait and I can build resilient systems until we can be patient through this downturn. We can be patient through this talent crunch. We can be patient through this crisis. Um, because I think when we... Um, Air on the side of action, we can make some hasty decisions. And look, I'm an action guy. I can absolutely, when it, when we have made the decision, let's go to work and let's do it fast. But um, I've found that there is a lot of benefit because you can, I've had it before. It's like, oh, look at our competitor. They just launched this thing. They're going to crush us. And I'm like, we'll see. And it ends up being a product that they can't sustain that ends up not living up to the hype and great, everybody comes right back to us. So I think that's where I'm at with the EC. I tell folks, hey, how's it going? You've been there three months. I'm like, man, there's a lot of opportunity. And so there's like a thousand things on the table. And my job now is to patiently, not hastily, arrange them to know what are we doing the rest of this year? What, what's a, a 2024 question or issue? And then what's 2025 and beyond? And so I'm starting to make those decisions, bring the staff in on those. So when they're like, hey, here's an idea. I'm like, great for 2025. Great for Q3 next year. So that's where we want to uh, align. And I could have done that day one. Thank God I didn't. I joke. I'm like, whoever I talked to, like met with my first three weeks here, I need to talk to him again because I don't <laughs> remember what I said or what I said. I thought I knew and I don't know now. Again, that's the magic of walking into such a rich organization with so much opportunity is we get to learn those things over time and see where they fit. And so now, you know, 90 days or so, we're we're in that real sweet spot where, you know, I've started to hear this song starting to rhyme. I've heard, oh yeah, second verse, same as the first. So cool, we can then move forward on that. But I want to be patient enough to listen to the whole song first before we start making some of those decisions. Yeah, I love that. I was actually talking about that this morning in terms of, you know, I've always heard entrepreneurs um, say, you know, don't quit, just keep going, right? And I've always been like, that's a little bit cliche. Yeah, I get it, yeah. But 2023 has been a tough year for a lot of companies, right? And a lot of times it makes you question, you know, what can I be doing better? What can I be improving on? And what I've realized this year that really stands out to me and the way that I've kind of framed it in my head is you just got to stay in the fight. You just gotta you just gotta stay in the ring as long as you can. Cause if you wait it out, you're gonna beat out a lot of your competitors. Cause a lot of people don't have the stomach for this, especially when things get hairy, especially when you get adversity, and it's gonna happen invariably, especially if you have any type of level of success. And so just, you know what, live to fight another day and 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 stay in the fight is something that I think has really resonated with me this year. And it's something I will take with me going forward because I think it's super impactful. And like you said, you can wait out a lot of people and competitors. If you're just patient. That's right. Love it. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. I'm looking forward to this episode coming out. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person my next trip to Nashville. Thank you so much for everything you do. Hey, you bet. Thanks for your support. Thanks for this interview, man. This has been great to talk a little more today. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.